Taking you inside the world of music, this is Inside Music Cast with Rick Such and Eddie Cabello. On this episode, Inside Music Cast welcomes Scott Page. Welcome to Inside Music Cast, a podcast devoted to musicians, fans, and the people that make music happen. I'm Rick Such. And I'm Eddie Cabello. This is our first podcast, so welcome to all of you from around the world on our maiden voyage. And as Rick mentioned, the Inside Music Cast is devoted to bringing you candid interviews, news, information with the musicians, fans, and people that make it happen. That's right. This is the podcast that goes beyond the pop star and features the talent behind the talent. So if you're ready, let's get started. So our featured guest is Scott Page, a fine musician, as well as CEO of the new media broadcasting company. Hey, Scott, thanks for spending some time with us here on Inside Music Cast. Well, thank you very, very, very much. I'm actually very excited about this to be... uh sort of the flagship interview here for your new network. The way we'll get started is asking you, you know, we know that you're a fine musician, but how did you get started in all of this? Actually, I, I, I come from a musical family. My father uh, is a musician, and um, he was uh, uh, actually, when I grew up, he's one of the musicians who was on the Lawrence Welk Show. So I grew up in the uh, Lawrence Welk musical family. He was with him for 14 years. And that's when I started playing and really wasn't interested in music that much other than to kind of do it for my dad and got into playing. And I ended up doing a few of the Lawrence Welk shows in the early days where we were water skiing and uh, playing uh, by the sea at the same time. <laughs> it was pretty funny. My dad played two clarinets and I played uh, a, a cornet. That's hilarious. Check it out. I mean, you actually, are you saying you actually have video of that? Oh, yeah, I have all these. I did a whole bunch of the shows when I was a kid. No kidding. So anyway, I grew up there, so I was, that's what got me interested in music. Uh, and then uh, my father also, he, was, uh, he did a lot of work at, at you know, like NBC and the Light Opera season. He was a studio musician hmm. with a lot of different uh, things. And so I grew up in that kind of business. And actually what's interesting is through my years, my father has always been a very entrepreneurial kind of guy. But he was actually him and a guy named Brad Plunkett were the, the guys that invented the wah-wah pedal. Wow, yeah. Which is kind of a piece of history. When my dad oh, was yeah. at the Vox Sound, uh, Vox was the company, and it was called the Sound Lab, and he had the world's first amplified orchestra. And I remember he coming in the house one day and bringing <laughs> this, little, this little piece of plywood with a little thing. He said, check this out. And so he plugged his clarinet in, and there you go, the wah-wah pedal. And uh, what it was is he wanted his clarinet to sound like Clyde McCoy. You know, the guy that mm-hmm. plays trumpet. So he wanted to be able to do that, so they put this little device together, and there you go, Jimi Hendrix. Wow. <laughs> now, did, did you grow up in L.A.? Yeah, I grew up in L.A. I actually lived in a house for 43 years. I actually ended up buying the house in North Hollywood from my folks that I grew up in. You spoke about uh, Lawrence Welk. Yep. Now, there was this, now the clarinet player. I mean, these, these Lawrence Welk days really are impressive in my mind. Uh, chances are we're about the same age, but I, all I can see is, is Henry Cuesta. Remember who Henry was? Henry Cuesta, yeah, okay. yeah. He, actually, he was the guy that, well, did Henry to take my dad's place, or he took, Pete Fountain was on the show. Pete Fountain, exactly. Too. Well, I've got, a, here's, the, here's the funny caveat to this whole thing. My mom dated Henry Cuesta in Corpus Christi, Texas, even before he was uh, uh, part of, <laughs> of of the Lawrence Welk show. He used to play at the Galvan Dance Music Studio on the second floor, and my mom dated him before she married my dad. Oh, wow. That is, is that a, a trip? Man, I'm telling you, we're, we're, it's one degree from separation here, brother. <laughs> I don't know where we're this is going. <laughs> I don't know where this is going, but i tell you something. That's a dangerous road, so let's get off that real quick. <laughs> <laughs> so, officially, what was your first gig as a teenager, whatever? When did you, I mean, the Lawrence Welk show? Lawrence Welk show. Yeah? 
Yeah, when I played with my dad, I used to do it. You know, we used to they used to do Christmas shows, and we did specials throughout the years. I probably did about, you know, through through those years, maybe five or six shows. And every year, they'd always have the family Christmas show. So those were the right. first things, and I'd usually end up getting to play like a little trumpet thing with my dad or those kind of things. And then, um, you know, really, my re- what was interesting was is my real love was in. Uh, studying graphics and architecture, and I was studying to be an architect all the way through. Mm-hmm. You know, got really into that in junior high school, and then went into high school. And uh, <clears throat> you know, the music thing was something I sort of did on the side. And this is this will be interesting for you guys. Is what happened was is I was playing in a band. Finally, got to college, and I was playing trumpet in the in the band. And uh, this was before I was a saxophone player. And I ended up getting in a band with David Page and Jeff Picaro. No way. Yeah, it was called the Merciful Soul Band. And I was the oldest guy in the band, and it was like a Chicago Blood, Sweat, and Tears <laughs> band. And actually, I have the recordings of that band. Oh, my God. That I, wow. we did at the Vox Sound Lab, which was built for my father, which was a big-time recording studio, and uh, became Good Night L.A., and many records came out of there. But we ended up going in there as a kid band and recorded a couple tracks. So anyway, that's what got me. All of a sudden, I was when I was in college, I was working for a company called Audiodyne, and I was a I was a draftsman drawing you know exploded views and things for the manuals mm-hmm. and that kind of stuff. And then I got in this band, and then all of a sudden it was like, wow, I'm playing all these bands. We're winning battles of the bands. I mean, it was a killer band as a kid band. It was probably the coolest thing in the San Fernando Valley at the time. And uh, all of a sudden it was like, wait a minute, I'm going to these gigs and there's chicks and all of that kind of stuff. I could either be <laughs> on the bandstand or sitting behind a, a desk uh, drinking you know ten cups of coffee every day. And I said, wait a minute, I need to be a musician. So it was that band and that experience and playing with Paige and, and Jeff that really hooked me on the music side. And I was the worst guy in the band playing second trumpet, but it was the thing that really gave me the motivation to become a musician. And from that point on, I, you know, I started studying uh, you know, ferociously with teachers. And I studied with a guy named Lyle Spud Murphy and learned composing and arranging, graduated from his course called the Equal Interval System, and mm-hmm. another whole story. And then... Uh, at the same time, I was just studying with a whole variety of teachers, and uh, just kind of working my way up and through the through the through the ranks. And then I guess you know that, that's when I really got into playing the saxophone and the guitar. And uh, that's when I got the first gig. My kind of first real big time gig was with Seals and Crofts. Really? And that was in 1977. Uh, yeah. And um, so you know, and that's again the Toto guys, Jeff. And right. All those, you know, we're all part of that whole scene. So anyway, and I'll, uh, I'll never forget the day I actually got the call for the Toto gig. I felt like I arrived going back with my old buddies again and getting a chance to play in the band. Getting back to Seals and Krauss, they had incredible harmonies. You know, the oh. uh, yeah, as solo artists, they were, the voices were so unique, but you get Dash Crofts on, uh, I mean, you put them together, they're inseparable. It's almost like the, those two voices were just just made in heaven, you know? Oh, they were. They were I mean, they were monstrous together. There's yeah. no question. That was a great fun. That was a big, that was for me, it was a big turning point for sure. Did the other Toto guys ever tour with him also or not necessarily? Uh, well, I know Jeff did tours with him. I'm not sure exactly if Mike, I think, I think Mike was on the road. Mm-hmm. I mean, people, you know, it was kind of a, uh, a band in those days that a lot of the studio guys were, you know, kind of went through for periods of time. I'm, I remember the band that I was on when we had there was Neil Steubenhouse. I don't know if you remember Neil, the bass yeah, player. Yeah, yeah, he's awesome. Yeah, it was Neil and a uh, uh, great guitar player, George Deering, mm-hmm. big-time studio guy. Uh, let me see, who else was playing? Raymond Pounds, he played with Stevie Wonder, and stuff, played drums, and uh, 
Chris Boardman, you know, our, yeah. one of our correspondents over there on the Toto Network, sure. he, he was also in the band. And, you know, we toured, you know, Europe and Australia and the States. Right. The whole thing. Yep. Transitioning now from Seals and Crofts into, into Super Tramp and Pink Floyd. Mm-hmm. You've, you've done some work with them. Um, how did you get connected and, and, and what was your role? Um, you know, through the years after Seals and Crofts, you know, I still was playing a lot, playing a lot of clubs, doing different gigs. It's kind of interesting how I've gotten the uh, I got the Super Tramp gig is I used to play at a club called uh, uh, I can't remember offhand the exact mm-hmm. name of the club. But we played there every Sunday and Monday night, and uh, there was a guy that used to be sitting over in the corner and be coming in every night, and he'd be sitting there, and I talked okay. to him. He's a really nice guy. I didn't think anything of it, and next thing I find out, um, he was he was the drummer in Super Tramp. And that was right when they were doing um, Breakfast in America. Mm-hmm. And so we became, we became friends, and the next thing you know, I was actually out. I was on tour with uh, Diana Ross. I was playing in her band, and while I was out, I got a call from Bob Siebenberg, and he said, hey, man, we're looking for a guy that can double on you know, guitar and saxophone. Right. And so, Bob, I get a call while I'm on the road to come down, so I fly back from my, we were in Vegas with... Uh, Diana Ross, I fly, flew in and did a did an audition, got the gig, and then I worked with them, did a couple albums, and and uh, toured with them uh, for you know about you know three years, four years, something like that. And then during that, from that, um, I ended up going to uh, uh, David Gilmore came and did a did a solo on a record that we were doing for Supertramp. He came and played on the Supertramp record, and uh, he came and saw me play at this club called Josephina that night, because I invited him down after the sessions to come hang out, mm-hmm. and uh, then I invited him to another project I was doing a week later called The First Dance, which was a um, project that was uh, a thing I had like a 47-piece band with all-star, I had all the Super Tramp guys, really? and wow. Carl and Luke both played <laughs> on that, and we did this thing, and Gilmore came down that night and saw this event that I put on with this you know, big band and choir and all the whole trip, and so he called me up the next day to come play, put a solo on the Pink Floyd record. And I went in and did a, put a solo on Dogs of War on the Momentary Lapse of Reason. And mm-hmm. then uh, it's a great he called album. me up the next day and offered me the gig, and bada bing, there you go. I left Supertramp and then go play with Pink Floyd. Man, and excellent. And you toured with Pink Floyd, right? Yep, toured and uh, did, uh, let me see, the Momentary Lapse album and Delicate Sound of Thunder. And, uh, yeah, toured. We did about 18 months. I, I saw... Uh, I think it was the Momentary Lapse of Reason tour. Yep. I saw it in, in Indianapolis at the uh, at the then-called Hoosier Dome. Oh, yeah. And that was a gig. I don't know if you even heard about this, but uh, somebody in the upper deck of the dome during yep. during an intermission decided to take a dive yep. off the top of the dome, and I saw it happen. It was like time stood still because I saw this guy falling, and I just – I couldn't believe it. You know, oh my God. he hit the deck, and all you, you couldn't see anything after that. And you just yeah. saw a bunch of people around. I remember it happening. I mean, it was a big thing to talk about. That was for sure. Everyone thought that he may have taken a dive during the song "Learning to Fly," you know, yeah. which would have been appropriate. Yeah, he tried to jump on the bed, the flying bed, or you know, latch onto the flying pig. You know, <laughs> I remember. That. I remember that flying pig. Oh yeah. Oh my God. Hey, uh, two names: David Cassidy and Jane's Addiction. Wow, David Cassidy. Oh, David, I love David. He's a really nice guy. He was uh, also a buddy of Bob Ezrin, who was my partner in my last business. And Bob, you know, is the you know, world-renowned record producer. Yeah. produced all the Floyd stuff and all of that. And uh, <clears throat> but yeah, I did uh, several albums with David. Um, you know, putting horn parts and things like that on that. And then uh, 
so that's David Cassidy. And the other one was oh, Jane's Addiction, which is, came through Bob Ezrin, because Bob produced Jane's album. And he usually calls me when he wants something really wacky, because I kind of do things a little different. I drop microphones in the bell of my horn, and I yell and scream real loud and make a bunch of noise. And, you know, I put, like, on that Jane's Addiction record, I put, like, you know, you know, five tenors and, you know, five baritones all honking in unison, all ragged and rough, and, you know, that's kind of the thing I do. And so that came through Bob. Excellent. David Cassidy. I, I was getting ready to say, I, you know, you said you love David Cassidy, and I said, well, he. You think you love him, but what are you so afraid of? Yeah. Well, you know, he's a nice guy. He's a really nice guy. I, you know, I don't know him that well, other than, you know, I did a few albums with him, and I actually know his wife pretty well, Sue. She's a, you know, very famous songwriter. Her and I can't, the other Sue, I can't think of her name, they write a lot of mm. hit tunes they've written through the years. But, uh, yeah, David's really, really a nice guy. Well, I want to do a hard-line segue out of uh, your music business into your new venture, which is New NBC. Yep. And uh, how, how new is New NBC? Is this just start recently? Well, actually, um, New NBC, I actually started New NBC actually about five years ago. Okay. And that was just before the market crashed. I actually had started a company along with Bob Ezrin and another gentleman, George Grayson, called Seventh Level. Okay. So Seventh Level was a... Mm-hmm multimedia uh, sort of games and education company and that was during the day of early CD-ROM sort of 19 we started that company in 92 and uh, had a nice run we took it public and we did all the you know Monty Python series of games and mm-hmm. I got to work with Terry um, my, you know Terry Gilliam yeah, and yeah. all those guys and uh, then we did uh, also the Howie Mandel series of educational titles and then from that, that was what really got me into this whole cyber scene. During the 90s, I, I just saw this opportunity and did my first CD-ROM in 1990 for a company called ProSonus, basically saw my future and right. really started really focusing on new media and technology. When you're interested in t- technology, I mean, are you a tech geek that's hidden inside uh, you know, musicians' clothes here? Or, or when did you find out your interest that, hey, this technology is something that really uh, interested you? I love the whole thing of pioneering and, and the entrepreneurship and inventing. Mm-hmm. And I had actually uh, started uh, my company prior to Seventh Level, which was called Walt Tucker, which was named after my two heroes, Walt Disney and Preston Tucker, because of their pioneering spirit. You know, Preston mm-hmm. Tucker was the guy that built the Tucker car. Right. And um, during that time, I had built a recording studio that had a system called Earmax. And Earmax was a basically a, a, a controlled environment that would inspire musicians to play, and it had a whole system of near-field monitors, and people wore lavalier microphones, which, which the, uh, we had MIDI at the time, which would have MIDI-driven microphones that would allow for picture and sound to work together. So I was experimenting mm. heavily with how to make sound and picture uh, you know, go together. Right. And actually one of those projects, that Push Back the Walls project I did with Jeff and Lukather and stuff, was actually shot in this whole sort of new way of kind of putting picture and sound together. Huh. Uh, but uh, during that time, um, I basically saw my future after doing those CD-ROMs and just really loved the idea of being able to have a monitor in front of me that's, you know, you're sitting right in front of a 17-inch monitor and you've got stereo speakers. And so you could really create an you know, immersive experience between sound and picture in that environment. So I got really into that and just started really hanging in the cyber scene in the, like, sort of 89, 90s, <laughs> And uh, was going, it was really fun. It was like, you know, I was hanging in the cyberpunk with all the cats in these little garage yeah. doing weird kind of computing things. Myself and uh, 
uh, Todd Rundgren, sorry, Todd, and uh, Thomas Dolby were sort of the first kind of pioneering kind of music guys that mm-hmm. got into this whole CD-ROM and multimedia time. Yeah, so from there, I just got so hooked into the whole concept of, you know, this whole new art form. And that's what I'm so excited about right now is uh, with new NBC. We're at such a major, uh, you know, change right now in, in, on globe, in a global sense because there's so much disruption that's going on between... You know, the communications companies are now, you know, phone companies are becoming entertainment companies, mm-hmm. uh, cable companies are becoming phone companies, uh, and now this whole new world of mm-hmm. sort of self-publishing and social networking and stuff is coming on. So my whole thing is I just got into this tech swing, and after my last company, new, uh, Seventh Level, my partner that I met, uh, Russ Lujan, that's my business partner, that is, yeah. uh, he, uh, <laughs> we ended up starting, i got to be careful now, actually, David Gilmore beat me up the other day, I said, hey, this is my partner, he said, I didn't know, and so I, <laughs> uh, anyway, um, he called me up and we decided to uh, start a new company, and we started New NBC based on this whole concept, and then when the market tanked, we just went underground and been building technology for the last sort of three years. Mm-hmm. And now we're just starting getting ready to surface again. And we just started the first phase of our whole technology push with the uh, Toto Network, sure. as you guys know. Yeah, thanks for the segue. I was about to ask you about that. <laughs> <laughs> yep, the good old Toto Network. Yeah, so we're having some fun right now, basically pulling together a whole series of uh, technologies, that bunch, a lot of proprietary that we're building and bringing together other types of technologies into a kind of unified system that allows for content holders, people like Toto or, you know, artists, uh, to uh, be able to create a direct business to their fan base and uh, create a whole new kind of a new experience. It's virtually a new art form where people can create and share together and uh, create new kinds of sort of contextual content. Mm-hmm. It's, um, you know, it's a whole new area, and it really excites me because of the new art form that can basically come out sure. of this. And that's what we're doing basically at New NBC. You know, when you start talking about musicians and technology and, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, a certain you just mentioned a couple names of some guys that were just on the forefront of, of the digital era. I mean, you start talking about uh, Todd Rundgren, um, Thomas Dolby. Uh, I mean, you talk about these. They, they have like a, a knack for really – I mean, diving into the new technology and so forth. I mean, they were sort of technology-driven with their keyboards and the way they recorded and the way they produced. And actually, you know, Toto is is one of those that were really instrumental in the digital age, too, you know. Uh, I recall back, uh, of course, you did, too, in the early 80s. Toto was sort of making history with Yamaha. Remember the the, oh, sure. the, the DX7s and so oh, forth? Yeah, you you probably were there, you know, with uh, James Newton Howard when they debuted at, at NAM in Anaheim years ago. Yep. And uh, so Toto was making sort of digital history back then. Oh, uh, absolutely. I mean, that was why, to be honest, that was one of the very interesting uh, reasons to uh, go to Toto and say, hey guys, you want to let's, let's go together and build this Toto network is because of their pioneering spirit in the old days. I mean, the early drum machines, uh, I mean, I still have my number, my Lynn drum machine was probably yeah. one of the first ten, I think, that was ever made, and it had all Jeff Carl samples. Incredible, yeah. Yeah, you know, so he was, those guys were always in the very early pioneering of, of those types of technologies. So mm-hmm. it's kind of fun now to have these, you know, we're not all as young as we used to be, but we get to play in a young man's game right now, and it's kind of fun to, uh, you know, 
have the old dogs teach the new dogs some tricks. <laughs> yeah, I guess most people, you know, um, that uh, you know have unplugged from Toto for many years and and know that they're uh, of course back on the paths again of of paving a new road with a new album and so forth. Yep. Um, I mean, these guys are. I mean, they they never left the industry. One of the great things about Toto that most people don't realize is how much music individually and collectively they have touched that has been so important. I mean, if you took the units of records sold that they have done, it's, they, you know, it's in the billions. It's astounding. It's yeah. astounding. I mean, they have been on more hit records and more records than any group of guys on this planet. Mm-hmm. When you start looking at it, just go take a look at the discography of all of those players. I mean, even if you look at Jeff's discography, yeah. and mm-hmm. he, he, since he's passed, I mean, his work that he did in his lifetime in that short period was just astounding. And, you know, it's all the great records and albums and artists that you've always basically molded music history over the last 30 years. So it's really pretty fun. And that's what's so interesting about the Toto Network with these guys, because part of it is, is it's about Toto, but it's all about the folks and the players and the people that have been involved with Toto. We're bringing them all into this great social network. Mm-hmm. You know, you're talking to right now. You're talking to two of the biggest Toto, arguably the two of the biggest Toto fans on the planet. Well, that, that I being. love that. <laughs> <laughs> and Eddie and I have traveled all over the place to see them play, and we've had opportunities to meet the guys. And I was curious to know your experience with uh, working with them on this new venture. How's it been? And, and are, I, I'm sure they're probably really open and receptive to the ideas you have and implementing those into the into the Toto network. Mike Picaro has been just monstrous. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's so into this, and Bobby, and uh, you know, Lucather, and, and Paige. They've they've been they really see this this new frontier, and are very excited about being part of it. And so it's you know, I'm 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 having a good time. Uh, you know, we want to get this thing really rolling here pretty quick, and hopefully we will uh, really get ready to launch all the new features and things that are going to be coming down the pike. But yeah, it's been a lot of fun. Uh, definitely, uh, Mike Baccaro has been awesome in this thing. He's, I think, the next, uh, uh, he's going to be our next, uh, what's the guy's name that does all the Survivor and all that? Mark oh, Burnett? Yeah, Mark yeah. Burnett, yeah. yeah all, there's going to be a whole series <laughs> of new Mark Burnett's that are going to pop up, and uh, watch out for Mikey Picaro. So is Mike your uh, inherent Toto uh, digital guru? Is he the one that's really, who's, who's the techiest of all of them? Well, actually, Simon is probably the mm-hmm. most techie when it comes, because, you know, True. he does the in- engineering on the records. Well, and kind of does all of that stuff. So he's probably, from a technical point of view, probably the most savvy in that area. Mike is uh, just, he's just the most into it. I mean, he's definitely savvy run, running computers, and, you know, he picks up things really quick in that sense. Uh, but mostly he just sees the opportunity and how cool it is to pioneer a whole new art, you know, this whole new area. Yeah. And, uh, you know, again, what we're doing and what we're about to launch here pretty quick with the network I mean, this is the kind of stuff, I mean, we're doing, I mean, even the Rolling Stones don't have it. So yeah. it's really kind of fun to um, to be bringing these new technologies with these guys, and they see it as a real, you know, kind of a way to kind of differentiate themselves right now mm-hmm. and take the opportunity now to basically go direct. Yeah. You know, the days of record labels and how they worked and all of that, I mean, this is all changing. It's so disruptive. I mean, the, the record label that's there right now, I mean, the nail is really in the coffin in that business model. Mm-hmm. It doesn't make any sense. So... This, and then I'm not saying that there won't be labels, and I'm not saying that there's not going to be people that will be able to take advantage. I just believe that there's eventually the, the opportunity now is that there is a massive opportunity for a musician's what I'll call musician's middle class, mm-hmm. 
and I don't mean that in a derogatory or negative way. I mean it in the way that either musicians for years are either they hit the top and they live large, or you know you're struggling along, working clubs, doing what you can to try to get sure, there. right. But now I believe with all these new opportunities and technologies to be able to, like we're doing, you know, global casting. Mm-hmm. You know, there are guys who are in Japan. We can build a group and create a community and uh, start to create, uh, you know, content to pump into that community and actually create a business that can uh, put, you know, musicians into the entrepreneur world of creating their own business around their art form. And I think you're going to see a lot more musicians that are going to be able to uh, sustain themselves in this new medium than ever before. I mean, you're getting to the point now, of course, it's been done for a few years now, but some people may not know about this, but, you know, you can record in L.A. In, uh, in, in a, and somebody be recording at the same time simultaneously in New York, yep. laying down tracks at the same time. The whole rules have changed, haven't they, Scott? Uh, the rules are so changed. The planet is in major disruption with all of this because, man, look at the boundaries. There's no more, no, you know, community. I mean, first of all, you've got travel. You know, you can be on a plane and you can be in, you know, in one day you're in Australia. You, right. know, you can get around pretty quick now. And second of all, with the communications of the Internet, I mean, it's just a whole different ballgame. You can, you know, like you see, Mike and those guys are in Japan and they're broadcasting out to their network. Mm-hmm. And we're all jumping on in real time from all over the world. So this is really something that it's going to be for the fan and for the... This is really about access, isn't it? It's all about access. You got it. It's access and collaboration and participation. It's just about getting to, being able to have that access. Because we believe that, you know, there's, there's the fan and then there's the super fan. And the super fan is the guy, that, the, the folks that really care about what the artist is doing and what's going on and will really help drive the network. And there's a real opportunity to be able to bring the super fans into the fold, into the business model, uh, to actually be part of the new, the new businesses. Um, right. You know, they're, they're almost like digital, digital street teams. Mm-hmm. You yeah. know, and you start building that up, and at the same time, it's a win-win from every, for everybody because it actually turns out to be a... Uh, a business that uh, everybody can participate in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Everybody gets to be an owner right. in this it, model. It's funny how you, you use the term super fan, and that's a different type of animal than your typical concert goer or whatever. I mean, what I see from a super fan is, you know, the guys that indulge themselves in the liner notes and are just so immersed into who, who's playing this session, you know? Isn't that correct? Yes, absolutely. And, you know, we based our whole business on a model that says that basically, imagine if you had a million fans as an artist, and if you take 20% of those fans, those fans we're going to call avid fans. They're mm-hmm. the ones that will basically, you know, go to your show, buy, maybe buy a shirt, and they'll definitely buy your record. Right. If you take 20% of that 20%, now you're down to about 4%. So anywhere between, you know, basically 2 and 5%, we're going to call the rabid fan. Mm-hmm. Our business is about those folks. Yeah. Those, that's what we, we're targeting. We're not, our whole networks are not trying to be like, like a MySpace or, you know, one of those things where it's just way broad. This is about creating a gated online community for the rabid fan, the people that really care, because they're the ones that want the access at that level, and it, they basically end up contributing and being part of it. Like you've been experiencing in our beta, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. People are already starting to post stuff. Well, when we give everybody the next set of tool set for people to be able to create and stuff on the fly and pump stuff out, the content's going to get pretty fun, and then the opportunities to collaborate with the Toto guys. Yeah. You know, we've got a whole series of things we're about ready to spring on everybody here once we get this next piece of tech sent out that's going to be really compelling, I think, because everybody now gets to be part of the creative process. Hey, Scott, are there any other, I mean, 
that you know of? Are there any other companies out there that are doing what you're doing and are there any other bands or you know, actors or what have you that are trying to, to step into this realm? Well, let's, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of people going after the business in the sense that you could look at Verizon's Vcast as being a, uh, somebody that's going into the business. Uh, you know, you've got Yahoo, you've got YouTube. I mean, there's a lot of people seeing that the, you know, this whole new area of self-generated publishing and connection is happening. Um, so I could say, if I could look at a variety of companies, well, there's IM companies, there's, you know, companies like Skype that are connecting people together. Sure. Now they have right. a service where you can have, you know, um, 100 people on the line at the same time. And it's really about the community broadcasting. What I think is what's really unique about us is we're a completely controlled, gated community, where mm-hmm. it's really, uh, which you haven't really experienced all of yet, which mm-hmm. will be coming down the line, but... Mm-hmm. It's the idea of having a place that you can go to where you can filter out all the extraneous riffraff and really get down to the stuff that matters to you as a user. So we're sort of the, I would kind of sort of like the VIP lounge. Right. And um, that's, that's where we're going. But, you know, there are companies definitely going out, but I haven't really seen anybody that is exactly going down like we are. There's a company called Bright Cove, which is out there. Uh, which is doing, you know, again, self-publishing, kind of, but all just video from a video point of view. Um, so, but again, what our model is, is we want to put the artist in business for themselves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's your business, it's your thing, we give you a complete turnkey system. So I think ours as being a complete, uh, like a complete turnkey system from everything from the, the web portal, which you guys have experienced, all the way up to the private closed network, which you haven't experienced yet, mm-hmm. but you will shortly. Yeah, so hopefully shortly. <laughs> hey, well, Scott, uh, we appreciate your time tonight. It, this has been a great interview, and we appreciate everything you've brought to this podcast. And I wanted to also mention that if people are interested in in what you're doing, they can check out the Toto Network at www.totonetwork.com. Yeah, they can go there, and if they want to find out about New NBC, go to www.newmbc.com. That's New M and Mar- like Mary, B is like boy, C and Charlie, newmbc.com. You want a couple guys over right now, and you've got a couple fans, super All right, fans. buddy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, we're super fans. I'm, I'm very excited to be part of this as the, <laughs> the flagship podcast for your for your network, and uh, also we're very excited to have you guys out on the Toto Network, and uh, look forward to a bunch of fun these next few years, huh? Hey, well, Scott, thanks for joining us on Inside Music Cast. All right, buddy. Hey, thanks, and good luck, you guys, and we'll see you on the Toto Network. All right, take, take care. Take care, See you. Very special thanks to Scott Page for joining us on this episode of Inside Music Cast. Our goal is to bring you a new podcast once every other week, so be sure to check your podcast downloads for the next episode of Inside Music Cast. If you have a question or a suggestion for the show, please drop us an email at input at insidemusiccast.com. That's input at insidemusiccast.com with one C. For Eddie Cabello, I'm Rick Such. Stay subscribed to Inside Music Cast, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for downloading Inside Music Cast, the podcast devoted to the musicians, fans, and the people who make the music business happen. Your subscription is appreciated, so be sure to check your podcatcher for our next episode. You can also visit InsideMusicCast.com for additional content. If you'd like to contact us via email, the address is input at InsideMusicCast.com. <laughs>